Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, a show where we discuss ocean conservation and awareness with scientists, researchers, and other industry professionals. Today we talk with Dr. Daniel Destell, the lead scientist behind the team working to preserve and study the underwater cypress forest, an extremely rare and important scientific discovery. He also teaches at Northeastern University. Dan, thanks for coming on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, the focus of today's episode, I think, is going to be a lot on your work with shipworms and the cypress forest. But first, I do want to talk about the Ocean Genome Legacy Center, which is a lab that you run, uh, I, I believe, through... Um, it's Northeastern, yeah? Northeastern University, that's right. Nice. Awesome. Um, so yeah, if you could talk for a bit about uh, just kind of, for people that don't know, what the lab is and what you guys do there. Sure, I'd love to. Uh, so basically, Ocean Genome Legacy is a nonprofit DNA bank. And what that means is we store DNA samples from all different types of marine organisms all around the world. And then we make those samples available uh, to researchers who want to do any sort of research that they desire. The idea behind this is that we know that many species in the ocean are threatened now, and they're populations are decreasing and one day they may not be there in order for us to be able to study them. Uh, So the idea is that we can't always preserve every animal, but we can preserve something from them. Uh, We can preserve DNA, which is a, a great representation of those animals in terms of understanding them. And then we can make those DNA samples available to people all around the world. They can do research to help us understand how to protect these organisms and how to prevent them uh, from ever becoming extinct. That's great work, especially again, you know, there's a bunch of people that have different jobs to do, but this is a very important one in terms of organization and then distribution to other people. So can you talk a bit about how that works? Like how how are these samples collected and processed? uh, Like the the day-to-day, I guess, of what a sample would go through. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a massive amount of diversity in the oceans, huge number of species. Uh, And so no one lab could really try to attack all of that diversity or understand all of that diversity on their own. So the idea is the more people looking at these samples the more we'll learn. Uh, So again, we can't go out and be everywhere around the planet ourselves. So we rely on collaboration with a lot of other labs all around the world. And they will voluntarily deposit material in our collection. uh, And there's no charge for doing that. And then we process those materials. In other words, we extract DNA from them and then we preserve them, usually in very cold temperatures like... uh, at either minus 80 degrees or minus 180 degrees, which is very, very cold. Yeah. Uh, and that essentially preserves those samples forever. And then when people are interested in working on a particular sample, they can come to our website, they can look at our catalog and see the species that we have there, and then request and say, you know, do you have samples for this particular species? And then, you know, we are able to provide them uh, those samples. That's great. Do you have uh, numbers you could crunch for us real quick about, you know, how many samples you've collected, how, what, how much research has been used in, et cetera? Sure. Um, I don't have precise numbers in my head. Sure, of course. <laughs> uh, but I can tell you roughly, there are about 30,000 DNA samples in our DNA bank. Uh, they represent around 5,000 
marine species. And in our history, I think that we've distributed about 7,000 samples to other research labs, all kinds of research questions. And they really run the gamut Mm -hmm. from studying starfish wasting disease, which is a disease that um, kills starfish. And that doesn't sound very important, but it turns out that starfish eat sea urchins and sea urchins eat kelp. And so when you kill off the starfish, the sea urchins go crazy. They eat all the kelp and they destroy the kelp forests. And and that's a right now a huge problem on the West Coast. We're seeing uh, the giant kelp forests there disappearing. And in part, that's due to this uh, starfish wasting disease. So you can see everything is connected. Uh, another way that samples have been used for a collection, for example, is um, to, we have, we have a, a group of colleagues who are trying to sequence the genome of the narwhal, which is this um, type of whale that has a giant tusk. It's kind of like the unicorn of the sea. And uh, although they're not officially considered endangered, they are organisms of concern because the, you know, as global warming occurs, we're losing habitat for many Arctic or many polar species. Uh, so it's very important to understand how these organisms live and how they're adapted to their environment. And genome sequences can really help us do that. Uh, and, and so those, those are just, you know, a couple yeah. of examples of the way that samples from our collections have been used. Yeah, I think what the what you guys do at the center is super important because it provides that baseline for other people to be able to just come and say, we need this sample, we need that sample. And even the smallest studies can have huge impacts because everything is so interrelated, like you said. And so if there's, you know, one little thing that you solve and you figure out or you figure out, you know, how this thing works more than you than you have before that'll create just patterns. And so I think it's, it's great that you guys are serving as kind of that, you know, baseline for a lot of research to get for free. You know, it's, it's public access, which is something I wanted to ask you about because uh, I think that's relatively rare from what I've, what I understand and it's extremely important and it helps for a whole bunch of things. So um, the public access aspect I'd love, I'd love to hear about. Yeah. So there are a lot of different strategies that uh, different collections use. Uh, Many of the collections that exist around the world are museum-based collections. Uh, But uh, we actually built this collection from scratch, not from, you know, a museum has thousands and thousands of objects in their collections. And many museums uh, over the past several years realized that many of those materials that they have in their collection also contain DNA. And therefore they've been trying to make those DNA samples available uh, to researchers as, as we do. Um, ours is a little different because we sort of started out as a DNA collection um, and, and was built for that particular purpose. So we don't have collections that people are coming and paying 10 or $20 to visit and, and, and see. So we don't have that revenue stream that many uh, museum collections have. And we don't have any support from any federal or state uh, government, which is another potential stream of revenue for museums or other types of collections. So we do have a small fee associated with our samples. Uh, It's a cost recovery fee. So uh, basically it's there to try to cover our costs for 
distributing samples, uh, but it's quite small. Sure. And it's, I mean, it's, a, it's a, again, a worth a thing because you have a, a comprehensive collection that the beauty of it is it specifically keeps getting bigger the more people interact with it. And it's very easy for that, you know, people to do that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and you made a great point. We can't predict which one of these samples will be important. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Uh, and, but the more people who are working on them, the more likely that any of them will become important for research. So that's really sort of be, the idea behind this is, is democratizing the mm-hmm. genetic diversity of the ocean. Make it available to the most number of people you can. Have more eyes and more brains focusing on more problems. Uh, and that increases the likelihood that some good use will come from these materials. Yeah, I think it's wonderful. And I, I want to ask, you know, I don't know if our audience is going to have is going to have this in mind, but research labs can feel very distant to the average person, like a non-scientist. Uh, and yet they're very mm-hmm. important. And so I want to ask, you know, why should the average person care about places like what, what you guys do? Why why should they be considered, you know, a valuable resource and a valuable occasion? Yeah. Well, you know, so much of science um is taken it uh, for granted mm-hmm. by the general public. You know, we pick up our cell phone and make a call, or check the weather, or watch a movie, and you know, forget the amazing technology that goes into producing that. Um, you know, and the same. There's so many aspects of our lives uh, that are touched on by biological research that we take advan- uh, take for granted as well you know um why do we have the technology that allowed us to develop uh say the COVID-19 vaccine Mm. so quickly where did that come from well it came from many different places but in part it came from techniques that were developed because researchers were studying the natural world and one that comes to mind very immediately is a technology called PCR. I think a lot of people have heard of PCR or polymerase chain reaction. So our COVID-19 test was based on that polymerase chain reaction. That technology was discovered almost by accident in a way um, by studying bacteria in the environment that are able to make DNA, copy DNA, uh, under extreme temperature conditions. We'll go into the details because it's too, too technical. Sure. But, but the point is that researchers studying bacteria that were able to live at high temperature found enzymes, these proteins that can copy DNA, they're called DNA polymerases. And then those DNA polymerases became useful for making copies of DNA in the lab And then that became a technology that could be used to identify a pathogen in the environment or in your blood or in your nose. (laughs) And it had a huge impact on the world. And who knew knew that it would become something that's that important? Because generally we're not dealing with it. I love, that's what I love about science. And I have this conversation with a few different people on the show, that idea that the way we all work as a, as, you know, as a species is everyone doing a little bit and it over, a, you know, put that over the course of millions and billions of people, it has a huge impact. And that's all science is, is everyone doing their part. And then the next group of people will use all that work and make something new. And 
who knows, you know, some researcher that uses stuff from your lab to come up with something that in tandem with a few other things changes the world in a few decades. You know what I mean? You never know. Yeah, absolutely. I love that idea. And I love it because many people, you know, when you read about science, you often get the idea that somebody goes out and decides to solve a particular problem. Mm -hmm. And that's how great discoveries happen. And, And the fact is, that's rarely how great discoveries happen. How great discoveries happen is more like what you described. A bunch of different people discovered things that at first seemed unrelated. And then someone had the great idea of putting those things together. And that's how great Mm -hmm. the big discoveries, you know, the the things that have great consequence uh, for society, that's how they get discovered. And we can't predict that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's why it's important to have scientists and to give them a lot of latitude to study a lot of different things because you just, you just never know. Yeah, it's a worth, it's a worth it gamble. And you work on something very closely that is, is exactly in that, in that realm where it's this, it's a little creature that you, that who knows the potential impacts to medicine and science it'll have. And that's shipworms, which I knew nothing about until I started researching this. And I've found out such interesting things about what shipworms are. And I'd love to hear from your perspective at a base level, what is a shipworm and how does it exist in its ecosystem? Sure. Well, just to start out with the common name shipworm is a little bit of a misnomer because they're not worms, Um, but they look like worms uh, and they burrow in ships, in in the wooden hull of ships. So that's where the name comes from. Uh, in fact, it was discovered, oh, I think in the 1780s or so, that they weren't actually worms, they're clams, they're bivalves. So just like, uh, you know, mussels or clams that you get on your plate in a, in a restaurant, uh, these are related to those, uh, but they just um, are very unusual in shape. They have a long worm-like shape where they have shells. They have a pair of shells like all bivalves do, but it only covers the very anterior end or the very head end of the animal. And the rest of the animal is like a long, wormy, worm-like creature. And that shape is an adaptation for burrowing in wood. So it allows the head end to burrow deep into the wood the tail end, it's got something called a pair, uh, siphons, a pair of snorkels, basically, that it uses to draw in water uh, to respire, basically to breathe. Uh, so one snorkel, it brought, draws in water to breathe. The other snorkel, it expels wastewater that includes its fecal matter. But the real trick that these animals have evolved is something that very few animals are able to do. They actually can eat the wood and they can use wood as a primary source of nutrition. And if you think about it, very few animals actually Mm -hmm. can do that. On land, we're all familiar with termites. Termites are able to do that. And a few closely related insects to the termites uh, can do that, but very few other animals can. Uh, And in the ocean, shipworms are the main organisms that eat wood. And so you might ask, well, why is a marine organism eating wood? We don't have trees in the ocean. Uh, but the fact is that you do. Every time there's a storm, every time that there's a flood, um, coastlines erode, trees fall into 
rivers, they get carried down to the ocean. So actually a, a very large amount of terrestrial wood ends up in the oceans. Uh, and if it weren't for these shipworms, our harbors would fill with this wood very quickly. Yes. <laughs> it would be difficult to navigate. Uh, so the shipworms are unusual from that perspective, a marine organism uh, that eats wood. Uh, and so we're interested in that for uh, a couple of different reasons. Um, one is that now people are very interested in converting things like wood or agricultural waste or domestic paper waste, which is a product of wood, uh, turning all those things into something useful instead of just going into landfills. Could we turn that material into something useful? And one of the things people want to do is convert it into biofuel. And so any organism that's able to digest wood and break it down into um, simpler components like sugars that animals can readily digest, that same process could be used to convert wood into sugar. Once you have sugar, you can ferment sugar and fermenting sugar makes alcohol and alcohol is a potentially useful biofuel. Um, so one of the reasons we're interested in shipworms is we're interested in whether those enzymes that they make can be used for something like producing biofuel. Um, and again, that falls under the category of who would expect. Exactly, right? right? <laughs> who would expect that you would find enzymes useful con for converting wood into biofuel in a clam in the ocean? And it could, who knows what potential solutions it could have down the line, like huge solutions at the, at the most optimistic end. Um, it could solve a lot of energy problems if we figure out a way to distill them. But yeah, you, you talk about, I, I guess um, we're going to keep working with shipworms because I believe this topic comes in tandem with my, the other topic. We talk about wood in the mm -hmm. water and recently, about a year ago, a group of scientists, yourself included, discovered and started working on the underwater cypress forest. That was kind of one of the coolest discoveries scientifically we've had in the last couple of years. And it made um, a big impact even on like mainstream news. So I'm curious uh, first, I guess in general, what is this cypress forest? And uh, we'll get into the details of the work you're doing on it. Before I mention the cypress forest, I should tell you one critical thing about the shipworms and mm -hmm. what makes us so interested in them. And that is the fact that one of the reasons they're able to eat wood is that they have bacteria that live inside their cells. We call them symbionts, right? Um, so these are bacteria that don't cause disease, mm -hmm. but actually benefit the animal. And they do that by making enzymes. And we, one of the things we learned was that the enzymes that these bacteria make help the animal digest wood. So that's a critical thing to know for the next part of the story, because we're, we have been able to succeed sure. in isolating bacteria from the shipworms and growing them in pure culture. That's a big step in science, because um, most bacteria that live inside the cells of animals are very difficult to grow in culture. And in most cases, we can't do it successfully. And that's true both of beneficial things like symbionts. It's also true of pathogens, uh, things that cause disease. Many pathogens are very difficult to mm -hmm. grow 
in pure culture. So an important step in learning to understand them is to get them into culture. It allows you to cut, cut the middleman almost where you're not reliant on having shipworms. Once you can do it stably, you can just work with the bacteria, which is what you need the shipworms for, you know? That's a great analogy. Yeah, yeah. that's absolutely true. Okay, so that brings us to the undersea forest. And we didn't discover this. Um, mm -hmm. it, it was discovered um, first by divers and fishermen. <laughs> mm -hmm. So a few years back, uh, some fishermen found spots in the Gulf of Mexico um, where they were able to catch a lot of fish. And they just wondered why these spots were better than some other spots for fishing. And so they hired a diver uh, to go out there and take a look. And when the divers went down, they saw something that, you know, they saw something that looked a bit like coral reefs. They saw these big objects on the seafloor and they were covered with sponges and sea anemones and various different kinds of marine life. And there were fish swimming throughout the crevices uh, and crabs and shrimp and all kinds of interesting critters. Uh, so they wondered what that was because they were too far north for it to be coral reefs, right? It looked a little bit mm -hmm. like coral reefs. Uh, and when they got up close, they realized that they were tree stumps or tree stumps sitting on the sea floor. This was down at a depth of about 60 feet. Um, and so a, uh, another journalist and videographer uh, named Ben Rains uh, made a little video. And he, he, he became interested in the site and made a video. And I saw that video and some other scientists saw that video and became interested in, in studying that site. And it turns out, uh, and this is in part due to the work of another scientist uh, named Christine DeLong from Louisiana State University. Uh, it turns out that when you look at those tree stumps, um, they're very, very old. Uh, they turn out to be about 60,000 years old. Which is about as old as people, which is crazy. It's, it's like our... Uh, it's well, yes. To give you some perspective, <laughs> there were no humans on the North American mm -hmm. continent at that time, right? Uh, that was at least 40,000 years and, and maybe quite a bit longer before any humans uh, were on the American mm -hmm. North or South American continent. Um, yeah, so what Christine was able to figure out is that this was part of an ancient cypress forest. So if you ever go down to Florida, you know, there's, or the coast of Louisiana, you can still see cypress forests along the coast. These huge trees, their roots are generally in very wet soil or actually in the water. And they often follow river beds. Uh, and, you know, so at one point there were huge cypress forests along the coast of what is now the coast of Alabama and Louisiana. Um, and this, you know, this was 60,000 years ago. So it was actually a time when sea level was much different than it is today. So sea level was actually much lower because this was a period where much more water was, was captured in the ice caps uh, of our planet. And so 
over time, as climate changed, sea level rose, and those forests became covered up. They fell below sea level, uh, and they became covered up with sand and silt, and some of those trees were actually preserved by being buried for all that time. Uh, and then we think for the site that we're working on, about 15 years ago, a major hurricane came. It produced very, very high wave action, and it scoured the seafloor, and it uncovered some of that ancient forest. Once it became uncovered, it was available for animals to settle on, to grow on, and in the case of shipworms, to eat. And so that starts a kind of chain reaction. You know, uh, shipworm eats wood, it produces larvae, uh, it reproduces, makes eggs and larvae that other animals can eat. And then other animals can eat the shipworms themselves. So that sort of starts a little food mm -hmm. chain. Uh, and based on that, you develop a whole complex community of animals living and getting their energy ultimately from this wood, which is in a sense, ancient photosynthesis. You know, so on land, all life depends on current photosynthesis, right? Plants making fruits and vegetables and animals eating them. In a sense, this is similar, except animals are eating photosynthetic products, in this case, wood that was made 60,000 years ago. It's it creates a very unique situation. The reason I'm so interested in this topic of discovery is not only it's the idea of a, you know, ecosystem kind of springing up out of nowhere, which is beautiful in itself, and not only that it is some of the oldest material that we've seen uncovered like this in, in a long time, um, the number itself, 60,000 years, is this unfathomable amount, but also that mm -hmm. concept that this may create very new and intriguing scientific discoveries because it's something that we don't see happen all the time. And so scientifically, right. what is the importance of this forest? What are you guys thinking you might be able to um, discover as a result of this you know, uniquely? Well, I think there's a lot to discover out there, but we focused on one little narrow aspect of what you could discover by studying uh, these kinds of sites. And we focused on another thing that symbiotic bacteria can do, and that is making antibiotics or antimicrobials. So all bacteria out in the world are competing with one another uh, to find spaces to live and competing for nutrients. And one aspect of that competition uh, is producing chemicals we call um, secondary metabolites is a very fancy mm -hmm. name for them. Uh, a more understandable name is natural products. So they produce these natural product compounds that can affect other organisms, that can kill other bacteria, uh, and so give them a little bit of an advantage in growing in their environment. Um, so we as humans take advantage of these natural products uh, as a source for drugs. So the very first antibiotics that were discovered uh, came from bacteria, bacterial natural products. Um, and to date, still the majority of drugs uh, that 
are approved by the FDA, either are natural products themselves mm-hmm. or are derived chemically from a natural product or are inspired by a natural product that was discovered in, in uh, a natural organism. So really, you know, again, this is something we take for granted. You go to the pharmacy, you go to your doctor, you get a drug, you don't think about very much where it came from. You only think about what it will do for you. Um, but um, many, actually most of those drugs came from either natural compounds we found in the environment or new knowledge that we got by disco- by studying compounds that occur in the environment. So our aim in this project was to look at these shipworms and other animals that are associated with wood at these deep sea sites to isolate these bacteria that are associated with them and to look for potential drug lead compounds. So compounds that one day mm-hmm. might become drugs, drug candidates, uh, to look for those drug candidates in those bacteria. And so to date, we have isolated several hundred bacterial strains uh, from shipworms and another group of uh, wood-associated clams called piddocks that we find down at those sites. And we're now screening through them, looking for potential drug leads. And we do have some promising leads. Uh, We're working with collaborators at the University of Utah. in the lab of uh, uh, Professor Eric Schmidt and uh, uh, Professor Margot Haygood. Um, and they have found some potentially very promising uh, antibiotic lead compounds there. And they're in the process of publishing yes. uh, papers uh, to describe these antibiotics. I say, I'd like to ask about it, but I'm sure some of that stuff is private until you guys figure out the details. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, so um, understandably, <laughs> yes, some some of these things have been published already. So, two uh, antimicrobial compounds um, have been published already from shipworm bacteria, and then one of them, very interestingly, was originally discovered as an antibacterial agent, but. Uh, um, a uh, very intrepid scientist who uh, spent some time working in my lab, um, Roberta O'Connor, um, at I, I believe she's at Washington State University now. Um, uh, she got the idea of testing this potential antibacterial agent against parasites. So parasites are multicellular animals or single-celled animals uh, that can infect your body something like the way bacteria infect your body. Um, But it's more difficult to control many kinds of infections due to parasites because their biology is more similar to our biology. So drugs that kill them often cause us harm as well. So it's very hard to find drugs to to treat parasitic infections. Uh, But Roberta, discovered that one of these compounds that kills bacteria also is effective as a anti-parasitic agent. So again, who knew? It's one of those, right? right? You never expect it, but if you get enough people looking at, at, uh, 
at problems, you, you find solutions. Yes, interesting ones too. And I think the antibiotic angle is really important because, I mean, you're hearing it a lot more now that antibiotics are, there's a lot of issues that are starting to occur, uh, even just with some, you know, over, we over prescribe a lot of them. And so finding new ones to use, to use effectively and trying to research better ways to do it. I mean, that's a, it could be a very huge human problem in the next couple decades. So it's very important to focus on things like antibiotic research. Yeah, it absolutely will be. Um, we're, you know, scientists are already aware of the fact that our antibiotics are starting to fail and they're failing because bacteria are learning to uh, become essentially immune to them. They're, they're learning to become resistant to them. So some of our most important antibiotics are losing their effectiveness. Uh, so it's very important to discover new antibiotics and new drugs to replace them. Because again, this is something we take for granted. You can go to the hospital. If you need an operation, it's no problem because we've got these antibiotics that prevent you from getting terrible infections every time you have an operation. If it weren't for those antibiotics, even the smallest operation, having your tonsils out, pulling a tooth, you could die from. And people used to routinely die from those kinds of things. Now we take it for granted that that won't happen, and that's largely because of our antibiotics. Um, if we ever lost that, it would be a terrible setback for oh, medicine. It would put us back 200 years probably medicinally at that point, you know? Absolutely. Um, well, I think another, uh, as important it is to find new antibiotics to replace the ones that are becoming ineffective, we also have to develop new systems that, will curb these new ones from also becoming ineffective. And I think that is something we really need to focus on is how to best administer antibiotics and keep them from becoming unusable. Because, I, you know, I worry of what if we stop being able to make new ones someday for whatever reason, right? We've, we kind of hit a wall there very quickly. You'll see society suffer immensely. Yeah, absolutely. One of the big biggest problems in antibiotic discovery is that we've discovered most of the classes of uh, antibiotics already, or at least the common ones. So when you, ones, yeah. <laughs> when you go out and look for some new antibiotics, we keep discovering the same ones over and over again, right? And that doesn't help Successful us. ones, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we discover, you know, you, you look for antibiotics, you find the ones that we already know about. And that's quite difficult. And that's why we... You know, many biologists are interested in looking at kind of weird animals and weird mm -hmm. bacteria, uh, sort of out of the ordinary ones, in the hopes that that's where they'll find new classes uh, of antibiotics. Another, Which is why the forest is so important. Absolutely. Because it, it, it's absolutely. highly unique, you know? It's, it's highly unique. It's just places where people haven't looked before. It's almost as important, you touched on something, how we administer drugs. It's actually important to understand not only uh, discovering these drugs, but how these bacteria use these compounds, right? We use them for a very different reason than the, the bacteria may use them. Uh, but understanding why the bacteria make these drugs and how they actually act in the environment can help us understand how we should be using them to prevent the, the problems that come from overuse of, of these antibiotics. Yeah, which is, uh, like we've talked about it, a huge problem. Um, and so, 
you know, we talked about a lot of different stuff today, the shipworms, the cypress forest. And I want to do mention before we start to wrap things up with the cypress forest, it's right. exact location is kind of a secret. And I've heard it's because there are some people that want to utilize it for non, you know, humanitarian purposes. And I'm curious a little about that, who and why um, sure, are, sure. are trying to get um, involved here. So their actual salvaged wood is a quite important industry. And in many cases, it's a good thing. You know, um, people are able to go into rivers where historically there's been um, a lumber industry and they floated logs down the river. And some of those logs sank to the river bottom. And you know, salvage companies can come and salvage that wood. It's good wood, and they can make a profit. And in general, that's a good thing. Um, but yeah. in this instance, we don't want wood salvagers to come out to these sites uh, uh, and begin mining the wood from these sites because they're very small sites. Uh, that's not worth it. Yeah, for what, a, a few, few tables or something. Coffee tables. <laughs> Is, is not worth the loss yeah. of scientific information uh, that's available there. Um, so it's it's interesting. Most of this wood, although it looks pretty intact, it's actually in pretty rough shape after 60,000 years. So a coffee table made out of this sure. wood would not uh, be very sturdy. Uh, uh, I can tell you that. Um, but it's important that these sites don't get overwhelmed by um, people mining them for profit or um, even tourists, you know, coming out to just see what it's like. Eventually, the locations of these sites will be made public. There's, there's an effort going on now uh, to try to provide some protections for these sites. Just going to ask if you were trying to make them like a marine protected area or something like that. Yeah, so there's, there's a legal effort going on in the state of Alabama to try to give some legal protection to these sites. And that'll be good because yeah. when they get legal protections, it'll be possible to uh, make those sites uh, yes. public, you know, when there's some regulation of, of how they can be exploited. Yeah. Um, I think that, I mean, I, I was very excited to do this interview because I find the Cypress forest to be highly intriguing and just seeing what comes of it. It's one of those long-term for an average person, keep it on your radar when you see stuff about it look at it because i feel like there's the opportunity to have some very unique scientific discovery here and i'm glad it's i'm glad it's being utilized well well you know there's one area of significance of these undersea forests we haven't talked about sure uh, and that has to do with the idea of uh sea level change sea level rise mm -hmm. right so we happen to be living in a period now of sea level rise and the evidence is extremely strong that we are the major contributors to sea level rise, we being the human race, mm -hmm. uh, being the major contributors to sea level rise. So some of that sea level rise in the future is preventable if we're able sure. to reduce our emission of, of greenhouse gases. But some of it's already baked in, right? Some of that is due to the greenhouse emissions that have happened over the past hundred years. We mm -hmm. can't take them back. They're out no. there already. So we're going to see a certain degree of sea level rise. It's inevitable. 
And it's important to understand what happens, how that sea level rise not only affects us on land, but how does it affect life in the oceans, right? On land, we can imagine we're going to have more storms. We're going to have more flooding. We're going to have loss of coastal communities and coastal cities. And most of our important cities are coastal, by the way. So uh, that, that's, an, that's an, a very serious consideration. But it also means that more terrestrial matter, plant matter, trees and wood are becoming submerged and entering the oceans. And that's going to change sea life. That's going to mm-hmm. affect sea life, sometimes in positive ways, but we don't know. There may also be a number of negative ways that, uh, that will affect sea life. Um, but it's important to understand that. That's one of the reasons why we should be looking at the past, these ancient forests, to get an idea of what may be in our very near future. Nice. That's a, I mean, that thing is a great place to um, end for today. So I want to say thank you for coming on the show. It's been very informative. My pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, if there's any uh, websites or social media links you want to put, we can put them in the description. We can have you say them here if you, if you have any that you're interested in. Yeah, so you can find a lot of information about the Ocean Genome Legacy and our research projects at our website, which is www.northeastern slash OGL. All right, so uh, Dan, thank you for coming on today and I uh, hope to stay in communication with you, especially if anything more comes of some of this research. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. We're brought to you, as always, by the CT Scuba Academy, and we release episodes every Monday, so be sure to check us out everywhere you get podcasts. You can subscribe to our Twitter at Blue Earth Pod, and you can find all of our episodes as well on the CT Scuba website. Thank you. Thank you.